Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Angles podcast. In this episode, we talk to Bob Eccles. Bob is an irrepressible font of knowledge when it comes to things about measurement, how to think about mandatory materiality, and has been in the thick of the what he calls the ESG culture wars of late, trying to weave the line between left and right, as well as public and private, on how sustainability is really playing out. Some of the most interesting moments of this conversation that I think people will get a lot from is Bob's insight into how do we rescue ESG or sustainability effectively from the culture wars? How do we move forward? Is ESG even worth saving in the first place or should that be left to the extremes? Do we have more to agree on than disagree on? And what is the disconnect right now between investment reality and the political sphere or in the zeitgeist? Bob also has more than one piece of practical wisdom advice and some homework for our listeners, which you'll have to listen to the end to, to hear about too, as well as some really interesting perspectives on where we go from here and his call to the action to the industry to be more involved, particularly on the realm of things on the environment as well as DEI. Thank you for listening to the episode. Neither MFS nor any of its subsidiaries is affiliated with Robert Eccles. The views expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change at any time. These views should not be relied upon as investment advice, as securities recommendations, or as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any MFS investment product. Welcome to the All Angles podcast. I'm Vishal Hindocha, the Global Head of Sustainability Strategy at MFS, and it is my great pleasure and delight to welcome Bob Eccles to the first episode of Season 2. Bob, welcome to the All Angles podcast. Thank you for coming here. Vish, good to see you, and thanks for the invitation. I am genuinely thrilled to be here, Bob. We've, um, like many people in the industry, obviously followed lots of your work, starting from all the work you did on materiality. That was when I first, you first entered my consciousness and we began speaking to some of the work you've been doing with uh, SASB, the ISSB, the Value Reporting Institute, and now sort of in the thick of the culture wars, which we're going to get into. Uh, Bob Eccles is a visiting professor at the SAID uh, Oxford University um, and can deadlift 410 pounds, he just told me. So I'm suddenly very afraid sitting opposite the table from him right now. Uh, Bob, welcome. Thank you for being here. And um, I just butchered your introduction. So maybe you could give the listeners a brief potted history of how you got here and how you got curious about the things that you're working on today. Before I do that, let me say you're giving me too much credit on the deadlift. You're a second Don black belt, Vish, and so you could take me out in a New York second. All I've learned how to do is kind of move a bunch of iron. Uh, and I think I told you earlier that I'm trying to learn the Turkish getup, yes. which is um, harder than getting a PhD, so I'm not sure that's <laughs> going to happen. So history, gosh, Vish, um, I turned 72 in May. How much time How much time do we have? As, as long as you'll give us. For this. But about 30 minutes of listener attention. So, uh, yeah, okay. so maybe, so maybe let's in, do this in a minute. In a minute or less, In a yeah. minute. So it's kind of a shaggy dog story. I was a pure math and history major at MIT, and then I got a PhD at Harvard, and I taught at Harvard Business School for many years. And I retired, and there's a theme through there of measurement. I'd always been interested in measurement. And first, it was internal measurement in companies. My first book was on transfer pricing, wrote a book on investment banks when I was an associate professor. That's how I got interested in the capital markets. And then got interested in corporate reporting, because this was way back, right? This was like the eight, late, eight, late 1980s, early 1990s. And nobody was really talking about this. And I started looking at sort of so-called non-financial factors. It wasn't called sustainability. It was before the GRI was formed. And that journey eventually took me to where I am today in the capital market. So it was reporting as this 
interface between companies and their investors as these non-financial factors became more important, as standards got developed, and we can talk about that. Um, I think initially the corporate community was probably a little bit ahead, you know, of the investment community. But there was still a lot of whining. We're doing all this great stuff in sustainability, and the investors don't give us credit, Vish, people like you. And I go, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. Let me look at your deck for your investor presentations. And maybe there was a token slide about ESG, something that was all financial information. Then five, six, seven years ago, the switch sort of flipped in the investment community. I wrote about this in a little piece in the Harvard Business Review called The Investor Revolution. Shareholders are getting serious about sustainability. And that happened when you folks started to realize that this was relevant to return. Mm. And it isn't every sustainability issue. It's the material ones, and we can talk about that more later. There's a difference between Global Reporting Initiative and the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. So then investors started engaging more with companies around these issues. And then the sustainability stuff was tied into the timeframes because it doesn't really happen over the next quarter year. So it was pretty exciting. A lot of things started to happen. Um, you had the International Sustainability Standards Board. I'll talk about that more later, probably get established. And, and here we are today, and then about a year ago, maybe to cut to the chase, these culture wars erupted in the United States. And I'm like, wow. So you've got people on the right that hate ESG. It's like, what do they think ESG is? Oh, it's a pernicious, progressive strategy to you know, impose ideological and political views that they couldn't get through the ballot box. Mike Pence always likes to say this, his letter to the Wall Street Journal. They actually weren't the first mm. to hate ESG, as you know. I published a piece about the International Sustainability Standards Board, a little piece with Bhakti Merchandani, my friend, 1,300 words in the Harvard Business Review. I posted on LinkedIn, I've never gotten so much hate mail in my life. Bob, WTF, and I told you, and it's the I question mark SB, it's not true sustainability, it's only ESG, and like, okay, I get there's a difference between material risk factors for value creation and making the world a better place, and that's important. We need to talk about where the line divides between the public and the private sector. So kind of here we are, something 10 years ago, you'd go ESG, nobody knew what it was. Mm. You'd explain it, they said, oh, well, it's like philanthropy and you're gonna lose money. No, you know, I do some research. George Seraphim's done a lot more if you focus on the material issues. Not everything, the material issues, they're industry-specific. On average, it's five or six. When you look at SASB's industry classification system, as you know, 11 industries, seven, 11 sectors, 77 industries, and it's related to value creation. But now it's like, well, we hate ESG because it's not true sustainability. It's not kind of system-level change. ESG was never about the positive and negative externalities of a company's products and services. That's important. It's the operations and activities. It keeps the world from becoming a worse place. Yeah. You know, it's managing the material risk factor. And you've got the positive and negative externalities. That needs to be dealt with. And the investment community can do some, the corporate community. This narrative, I think, has been damaging of the public sector is failing. So the private sector has got to step it up. And that's, I think, part of the problem. So you've got kind of the far left saying the private sector isn't doing enough. BlackRock's got to get out of all the fossil fuels. Well, I don't think that works. I think you need engagement, not divestment. Then you've got people on the right saying, oh, look, here they're involved in public issues. It's none of their business. That should be left to the political process. Now we have this major kerfuffle, this entertaining ESG culture war that's been going on. When you think about it, 
really not all that long. No. You know, not even a year. Not even a year. Not even a year. So before, before I want to come back to the topology and the culture war. Just maybe a step back. So, and it's exactly the topic that I was hoping that we could unpack a little bit with you today, Bob, because you seem to be in the middle of this in more ways than one, right? In terms of who you're, who you're speaking to and some of the work that you've been doing to sort of reconcile views on different sides of the political aisle. So I do want to get there, but maybe a brief step back. Why, why do you think ESG or sustainability has been so supercharged and has become such a political weapon for both the left and the right, well, especially in the US? It's not entirely in the US. It's not an entirely a US phenomenon, but it does seem particularly um, disproportionate here in terms of what dominates the airwaves. And so just curious, given your purview, what, why, why is that? Why, why has it become a political football? You know, it's it's a good question. I don't really have the answer to that. I mean, it would be a great doctoral dissertation someday. When you look at it, I can understand how things like abortion and gun rights are mobilizing to people, you know, who have kind of those political views. Supposedly, there's this guy, Andy Puzder, that I've read about a little bit. You know, he kind of gives himself credit for starting this. You've got something called the American Legislative Exchange Council. You've got the Heritage Foundation. You've got the Heartland Institute. You've got the State Financial Officers Foundation. Somehow, ESG, and it gets mixed up with woke, Hmm. right? Like I say ESG, I think material risk factors. They say ESG, and they say woke. Woke is just like a new way to call people a name. You used to call them liberals with derision. You call them progressives with derision. Now we say they're woke. I don't... I don't understand how this acronym is going to have long-term legs for mobilizing the base. How they've picked ESG, this thing that almost had no recognition whatsoever, and made it famous, you know, that'll be something to sort of unpack over uh, the years. History, history will tell. But I, as I said, I don't, I don't think this has got infinite legs. No. So we are in... And I see the spectrum. And even within one side, and we were talking about this just before we began recording, that there are now cracks beginning to appear and people sort of asking interesting questions, even from within the right or within the political left in the US. Um, You do some interesting work sort of across both sides. I'd just love, you know, Bob, what are you doing about this, given your platform, given the history that you bring to it, given your focus on measurement, and you've been involved in some of the most important developments of how sustainability has gone sort of mainstream, um, if you think about that, your history that you just gave. What, what are you doing about sort of trying to resolve this into a more constructive debate? Well, you know, it's interesting, Vish. Um, people live in bubbles. Okay. We're in Massachusetts. Welcome to my, you know, democratic liberal bubble. So I wrote a piece last summer grift capitalism, the GOP's brilliant strategy for ripping off ordinary Americans. The woke crowd loved it, right? I get an email from this good friend of mine named Dan Crowley, who's a Republican. I've known him for years. We go way back down in D.C. with a firm called K&L Gates. He writes me, he says, Bob, read your piece, disappointed. Why put fuel to this rhetorical fire? So we get on the phone, he says, Bob, sustainability importance of the capital markets, absolutely fundamental. So what you have to understand is if you say sustainability to a Republican, they think AOC, Green New Deal, Europe, used to be a part of Europe, you're not anymore, Europe, Marxism, and they don't like it. I said, well, I don't think about it that way, but but I kind of get it. 
So we both agree that ESG, I mean, it's really pretty simple. It's about material risk issues that matter for value creation. So the first thing we did is we wrote a little piece for the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance called Turning Down the Heat in the ESG Debate, Separating Material Risk Disclosures from Salient Political Issues. That's important, right, because these things are being confounded. You can even believe in climate change as a Republican, but not like the way the Biden administration is going about. Fair enough. That's a public policy debate, and we should have it. That's a separate issue from whether the SEC has the authority, as I think it does, and not everybody agrees, to issue some standards for you know climate reporting, which is like a, not even a question in the rest of the world, but it's part of the culture wars here. So we did that. Then we did um, a little webinar sponsored by his law firm, KNL Gates, called DSG is in Woke, It's Capitalism. We did another webinar that was sponsored by the Bipartisan Policy Center called Where Does the ESG Debate Go From Here? And I'll talk about more of that in a second. And then most recently, as you know, we wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review called Rescuing ESG from the Culture Wars. And it's interesting, as I've kind of gotten outside of my bubble through Dan, you know, I've met other Republicans. I did an interview with Greg Goff, who's on the board of ExxonMobil. Um, you can see that. I mean, this cracks me up, right? So here, here's a guy, he's a really good guy. He was the CEO of an oil and gas company. He's a Republican, he lives in Texas. He donates to the Republican Party. Mike Pence whining about the engine number one campaign, and I knew all about that because my friend Charlie Penner was driving. It goes, put three environmentalists on the board who are undermining the company from within. And I'm like scratching my head. First of all, I thought environmentalists were good. Greg Goff? you know, is undermining ExxonMobil from within. Gee, I don't think so. If you look at what's happened to ExxonMobil's stock over the last year or so since he's been on the board, that's why I think this thing doesn't have long legs. The disconnect between the reality of what's going on and some of these claims are being made. So I've met Greg. I've met a really interesting guy named Rich Powell who runs a, what he calls, center-right organization called ClearPath focused on climate change. Uh, there's a gentleman at the Bipartisan Center called Tim Doyle, um, who was on the podcast I referred to in a minute. So what I find is interesting, you know, you've got the Freedom Caucus crowd, right? You know, you've got the far right over there and you've got the far left over in my, over on my side. And that's like this one level of discourse. Then there's people that we basically agree. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can disagree about whether something's material or not. Yep. But we're not disagreeing that ESG is about material issues that matter to value creation, that companies should be paying attention to, that investors should be paying attention to. And let me just as an aside, if we have time before we talk about some of these other things with the culture wars, uh, when we came in, I told you about my newest piece. I love the title. A tedious and boring analysis of two items in ExxonMobil's 2022 10K. Bob, why would you do that? Yeah. Okay, so here's ExxonMobil, and it's an oil and gas company, and it's like at the center of these culture wars between, you know, the right saying BlackRock's undermining America's energy industry, and it's also woke and this and that. Well, just as an aside, ExxonMobil publishes a sustainability report, and it's organized in terms of environment, social, and governance. Do I think that they're going to quit doing that? No, I don't think so. You know, do they have a commitment to, you know, getting to net zero for scope one and two? They do. Do they talk about DNI? They do. So all the stuff that's kind of like triggers, right? It's mm. not going to go away. But here's the fun part. I looked at their 10K. 
I like to do boring things. Vish, as I said, I wrote a 370-page book on transfer pricing. In fact, I met my wife on a blind date, and I spent the whole blind date talking about the book, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> and I just looked at item one business, item 1A risk factors, six pages. And I compared that content to the nine issues that the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board would identify as material for the oil and gas exploration and production industry. Every single one of those is in there. So the 10K is financial materiality. It's an official filing document. So don't tell me that ExxonMobil is being pressured by the woke to go put something in a 10K that they don't believe in. It's just not true. That's what I mean. The disconnect between a lot of this rhetoric and what the reality is. I mean, here it is. Those nine things are in their 10K. Here's what I think is going to happen. So in this webinar, the Bipartisan Policy Center sponsored, the first 15 minutes was an interview with a Republican, you know, congressman, you know, Bill Heisinger, who's from Michigan. And he was interviewed by, by Tim Doyle. And they talk about FTX and this and that, and some of the scores don't make sense, and the AI stuff, and I get all that. I think it goes, look, I'm, I'm from real estate. Location, location, location. Materiality, materiality, materiality. Yeah, sounds right to me. So his little session ends, and the moderator, Michelle Nellenbach, she turns to me, she says, well, Bob, why don't we start with you? Why don't you talk about the history of ESG and kind of how it started and how we got here? And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to respond to <laughs> respond to Congress. And I think it's coming. Oh, my God, what's he going to do? I said I couldn't agree more. And then in the piece, as you've seen, that Dan and I wrote in the Harvard Business Review, Bill Heisinger and Andy Barr from Kentucky have sponsored a bill in the House called the Mandatory Materiality mm -hmm. Requirements Act. It was introduced in the Senate by a senator named Mike Rounds from South Dakota with seven other senators. And I've read these bills. They're not long. Maybe they get longer when they go through Congress. It's above my pay grade. It's all very sensible stuff to me. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, it's material. If investors think it's important, and blah, blah, blah. So as I said, you're going to have this layer of discourse and a lot of, you know, passion and fun in these hearings in political theater. Then you've got Rounds, Heisinger, Dan Crowley, Rich Pyle, Tim Doyle, Greg Goff. I mean, we're not that far apart. Huh. We're like in alignment on the kind of basic concepts. That's where I think we're eventually going to land. It may take a couple of years, but that's the reality. That's, that's quite a reassuring message, actually, because actually what dominates the airwaves probably are, just like in every, any other topic, are probably the extremes of, of things. You know, it's very hard for the neutral to be the, uh, the most interesting thing for the average reader to read. Everyone wants to read kind of one side or the other. But you think that there's enough common ground, middle ground around things like mandatory, mandatory materiality and other kind of core concepts about long-term value creation that, you know, and this has to be part and parcel of it that we can rescue ESG from the culture wars? Can, can we rescue ESG from the culture wars? So I kind of parse this a little bit differently. I mean, I do think that eventually economic reality intercedes, as you know from talking about Indiana, mm. and you clued me to that. They passed this bill, and then, you know, this independent agency in Indiana says, well, if you do that, we're going to lose $6.7 billion in our pension system over the next 10 years. That doesn't make sense to me. And you're seeing pushback within the red states, like on some of these mm. anti-ESG bills. You know, reality of investing, reality of returns, I mean, that will eventually, you know, win out. Will ESG survive? Maybe not. 
And as you said, I mean, it's always much more entertaining and newsworthy, you know, when people are screaming about stuff. It's like, okay, so Bob and some Republicans are having a civil conversation and they're agreeing, well, that's pretty boring. Yeah. I mean, what's the news value in that? So I'm going, look, I don't care what you want to do with ESG. It's really pretty simple. It's material risk factors. It's positive and negative externalities. It's the difference between ESG integration, as we've talked about with Carolyn Impact. A lot of these funds being marketed as impact funds when they really aren't, and you've got FCA and other groups that are working on that. And then you've got sustainability. You need to think about that at two levels of analysis. You've got sort of the sustainable value creation capability of a company in terms of strategy and capital allocation. And then you've got the sustainability issues that you need to think about you know, for society. People go, we got to save the planet. Now, you're going to save the planet. The planet's been around 2 billion years. Last I knew, we had another 2 or 3 billion years to go before the sun goes nova. Plan will be fine. It'll change. Maybe we'll have dinosaurs again. You know, the issue is sort of, you know, society. And there, I think, when you, when you cut beneath the crazy stuff, you know, on whatever extremes, I mean, a very legitimate, as I talked about earlier, a very legitimate issue to talk about is what's the role of the private sector mm. and what's the role of the public sector. And so I think you've got an interpretation by some people on the right that things like Climate Action 100 are imposing a liberal agenda on companies and, you know, they're anti-oil and gas. I would argue, well, I don't think that's true. I think they're looking at this as universal owners. They're concerned more about beta than alpha. And that issue is a nuance that we really haven't gotten into in this debate. So, you know, that'll come later. But eventually, I mean, not eventually, just day by day, these funds all have a fiduciary duty. I mean, if you read carefully fiduciary duty, they're not doing things out of a political agenda. I mean, they've got, you know, beneficiaries that they owe returns to. And what's ironic is how fiduciary duty has even become loaded. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's non-pecuniary. Well, they're, just, they're asserting that material ESG factors are non-pecuniary. That's an assertion. It's not a fact. So they say it's non-pecuniary. I say it is. They say you're violating your fiduciary duty if you take account of material risk factors. I say you're violating your fiduciary duty. If you yeah. don't, then I say yeah. go read my piece if you can get past the title, a tedious and boring blah, blah, blah. And you tell me which of those nine issues that SASB classifies not as ESG, it's environment, social capital, human capital, business model innovation, leadership and governance. You tell me which of those nine issues don't matter to value creation for an oil and gas company. Mm. We're not hating on the oil and gas companies. They need to transition. I think they could be transitioning faster. That's my view. Um, if we could have the discussion at that level, then I think it becomes more constructive. Much more constructive. I'm tempted to go back to your first date with your wife, but we're not going to do that just yet. Um, I'm surprised she married me, to be honest. It's, uh, you said that you know, you're know you into really boring things. I just thought, what a relief that she must be really into boring things, too, if your first date was entirely about uh, a book on measurement. But you... I think she felt sorry for me. I went to MIT. <laughs> I didn't have that many dates. Oh. You know, it's worked out it well. It's worked out great. Yeah. It's worked out great. Here we are. So uh, actually, on the public versus private, though, so you said... Actually, when you were giving your background, it was really interesting. You felt that at the moment that you entered this, the public sphere was probably ahead, or the corporates, sorry, were at least ahead of investors. And then something's happened over the last sort of six to 10 years, let's say, where corporates have, uh, investors have got very much, you know, really interested in it. And it's become kind of the dominant agenda item probably for between us and, and many of our clients. Do you think that the private sector is doing enough in this space? You know, I laid down the gauntlet for you, Bob, and said, what are you doing? What, what's your view on 
how investors and everyone in the kind of value chain from kind of, I know you do a lot of work with corporates as well as sort of different types of investment houses. Um, what's your view of kind of where we could maybe step up or what would be your challenge back? The phrasing that you used is interesting and it kind of belies where you're coming from, Vish. Doing enough. Mm. Doing enough to find how. Doing enough to save the world. That's a separate question from doing enough to make sure that they can earn long-term returns as a corporation that can one. as an investor, right? Yeah. And, you know, my casual view, because I'm not an expert, is that, you know, if you take a particular sector like oil and gas, which is very controversial, um, it's not clear. Mm. You know, it's not clear because they need to transition. And look, I'm not one of these, you know, going to turn off the, you know, fossil fuel companies. Yeah. I mean, the IPC says in, by 2050, 95% less coal, 6% less, you know, um, oil, and 40% less gas. That's still a lot. We're going to have fossil fuels in the economy for a long time. Do I think that boards are engaged the way they should be? No. You know, do I think that investors are engaged with companies and they're having a conversation around sort of strategy and business transformation and transformation? I think there could be more of that. To be honest, I think every industry is going to need to transform. Um, I've got a dramatic example of that. As you know, my client, Philip Morris International, my controversial tobacco company client, they're undergoing one of the biggest business transformations mm. that I've ever seen. So to get out of the cigarette business, right? So if they can transform, then I think every company can transform. But you need the will and you need the capabilities and you need the leadership. And my concern about the culture wars right now is that, you know, it's kind of spooking people, mm. right? So there's a little bit of a, well, let's hit the pause button. I don't think, as I said, companies are not going not gonna to quit paying attention to climate and DE&I. But maybe they're going to talk about it a little bit less, and then the investors are nervous about, you know, kind of collective engagements and things. And so that's kind of one of the question marks that we're looking at now, and I have some views on that I can share later. Great. We've talked about some of the challenges and some of the things that you're involved in, but I always come away from our conversations, Bob, quite uplifted because you're always quite optimistic about lots of things. What are some of the opportunities that you see for our industry and the sustain how sustainability will unfold in the near term? I'll give a little pitch for the International Sustainability Standards Board. I think supporting that because you need to have quality disclosures on sustainability information like with financial information. So for me, there's a big opportunity, and in a curious way, just like I think these culture wars are a potential teaching moment in what you get in the House hearings, is we can all get real. Mm -hmm. And so I think the investment industry needs to um, say, listen, we want to be heard, and we'll come and meet with you, however you want to do it, it'll sort of vary by jurisdiction, and, and be more proactive. You guys right now seem to me to be a little bit reactive, and, and I think that's a mistake. You know, I think you need to be reaching out. Because as you said, Vish, you've got the extremes, and it's entertaining, and there's the cacophony, and you're playing to the crowd. But if you're going to get this discussion with the sustainability pragmatists around materiality, separating materiality from positive and negative externalities, you need the companies to engage, and you need the investment community to engage. And, and I'm feeling a little bit like people are going, well, I don't want to be the whale that pokes its head up and gets harpooned. Yeah. That analogy. So that's my pitch to the investment community. I like it. And I think, I like in terms of reaching out to the pragmatists, one of the things I hope for this podcast, actually an idea that I 
adapted or took from one of my early mentors, um, Roger Owen, who we've spoken about, but I'm, I'm, I need to introduce you to at some point. Um, he introduced this concept to me of um, ending something with um, WISDOM, which is an acronym for what I should do differently on Monday, right? So if a practitioner is listening to this, this mostly goes out to the investment community, right? What would be your advice for something that they should do differently on Monday? And as you think about that, one thing that I've took away from our conversation is, is your very poignant point on stepping outside of your bubble, right? So that moment where you reached into the Kale Gates and your friend who introduced you to the other side and-, and Well, and, and they you, reached out to me in fairness. Yes, yeah. They reached yeah, out to me, Yeah, right? And that's, I don't think stepping out of our bubble to acknowledge and respect different opinions just increases our own a knowledge base, but also the nuance with which we then apply some of these things and it allows us to sort of right size some of our arguments. So that's a practical piece of wisdom that I'll be thinking about in terms of how to expand that. But is there anything else that comes to mind for you, Bob, as something that as practitioners we can sort of think about doing differently on Monday? So I think, I mean, I during Climate Week, I was at a couple of conferences in New York, and I was talking a little bit about my GOP outreach campaign, as Dan and I were talking about. I said, how many people, this, this is like a sustainable finance conference, right? This isn't like a Greenpeace gathering. I said, how many people in here are Republican? Like, no one raises their hand. And in a bigger one, there was three people. They were in the back of the room. I said, you're in the back of the room. It's where you belong. Yeah. We all had a good laugh. That illustrates the problem. So go make friends with Republicans, yeah. with Tories, you know, if yeah. we're talking in a UK context. And what's interesting is that they're out there. I mean, I have a very good friend who's at a pension fund who I'm having this conversation in New York with dinner. And I said, well, I need to meet more Republicans. She goes, I'm a Republican. I just assumed she was a Democrat because, you know, she was in California. You know, shame on me. we really interesting exercise for people when they go back to their job the next morning, whatever morning they hear this. Imagine that you've been called in to a House hearing mm. on ESG. And some congressman says, you know, Mr. Ms. X, can you please explain to me how you're using ESG in your investment process? That would be a very good exercise to go through, how you would explain it as a portfolio manager, how you would explain it if you're on the stewardship team, how you would explain it if you're kind of the ESG center of competence, if you're the CIO, how you think about that across asset classes, across capital allocation. Be able to come in and make the argument for why this is related to value creation, why it's important for delivering long-term returns to your customers, and, and take responsibility for being able to make the case yourself. Don't just kind of let your CEO get beat up and your CIO get beat up. I think everybody in the investment community, you folks own this. Mm. I mean, I can write my little pieces and make friends with Republicans and add her on and this and that. In the end, I don't matter that much. What matters is the people that are doing the work they need to be able to make the case for themselves. And so I think every one of your listeners needs to give themselves that little homework assignment and be prepared and then then have them write me. And since I know Republicans, I'll give them their name. I'll send their name into the committee and maybe I can get them some visibility in Washington, <laughs> D.C., their 15 minutes of fame and make them famous. How's that? There you go. What a, what a brilliant call to action. Um, 
some homework. So uh, a way that I want to end the po- every podcast episode is with a secret question. So I've reached out for some homework. Could to... I say one other thing we talked yes. about? Yeah, What please. I think the investment community needs please. to change as yeah. opposed to what they should do to change. I think you need more gender diversity in terms of people who make capital allocation decisions. And um, I'll start with this sort of in a personal way. My favorite eldest child, Charlotte Hamill, is a partner in a fixed income hedge fund called Bracebridge Capital in this same building complex where we are, Vish, now. Um, we talk about this. I've talked about this with my friend Shudar Yao, who advises venture capital companies. 1.9% of new venture capital money went to women-owned firms. When you look at the investment community, you see a lot of women in kind of sustainable investing in the stewardship groups and the ESG groups. When you look at it at the portfolio manager level, you look at people that are allocating capital. My daughter has a big book in trades. It's a very small percentage. Mm-hmm. And it's a tricky problem because when I talk to my daughter about it, she goes, look, you know, we're a woman-owned firm. You know, we'd like to hire women. 80% of the CVs that come in are from men. So it's it's already sort of a smaller pool. So, I mean, you know, kind of kind of what do you do to sort of fix that problem? You can't just come out with a quota system and say we're going to have 50-50. You know, you're still going to have to be hiring for talent. I also don't buy this thing. We can't find competent women. There's competent women. I joke with my daughter. So I was a pure math major at MIT. She was an applied math econ major at Harvard. I'm the master brain, and she's the apprentice brain. She's got a daughter, a seven-year-old daughter called Thora, who's the apprentice apprentice brain, who says, I have a computer in my brain. The girl rocks it at math. She goes, I'm going to run a bank when I grow up. Now, you know, maybe she kind of picked that up because of what her mom does, mm. although the oldest daughter, you know, is a reader, and she's probably going to be mayor because she's got, you know, great political skills. Most girls don't have the advantage of having a mom yeah. who's in the investment community who's allocating capital. So I think it's important to somehow get that, and it's an issue that I think you guys need to address as well, how do you get sort of a more proportionate distribution of men and women, and then it gets even harder when you get into racial minorities, right, Uh, in terms of the people that are really making those capital allocation decisions. I think that's a really important thing to fix. Definitely. And this is an issue I've thought about a lot, actually, over the last, I want to say, 10 or 15 years. And one of my aha moments or moments of learning was that um, essentially, in order to sort of fix that problem of that pipeline of talent coming through, all the research suggests that any child, girls and ethnic minorities in particular, need to be exposed to a STEM career by the age of eight or nine. That's probably right. Um, in order to even have the mindset and the and the desire and the ambition to really pursue those the right subjects and to get into the right places. So there's there's one thing of how do we swim more upstream to get to and deliver sort of either financial literacy or that role modeling and that, that you're talking about at a much earlier age. And there's some interesting work that, that we've been doing. And actually some of our clients I've been speaking to that are really interested in this space are doing phenomenal work um, on it. And I'd love to actually bring them um, to talk about that work here because I think that would be illuminating for lots of people. But there's also, there was one interesting thing that came to mind as you were talking about sort of the 80-20 the in terms of 80% of male applicants to a particular role. Um, so Amazon were opening up a, um, a big base in the UK a few years ago, about 3,000 jobs that they were sort of creating. And they um, actually did a really interesting A-B test on the type of language that they were using in their sort of job descriptions. And they found that certain, the traditional types of language about um, demanding certain levels of experience or certain qualifications or certain things, 
just some of the language lent themselves more to um, women in particular, but also ethnic minorities sort of ruling themselves out of the position when almost semantically exactly the same thing, phrased slightly differently, That's interesting. was opening up a whole different talent pool for exactly the same job, exactly the same huh. level. And so that because they were opening, you know, like 100 jobs at the same grade, they were able to sort of properly A-B test it. And now they've come up with language that is less prohibitive for specific groups to think that actually I don't fit that narrative. And th- there, there are some um, interesting kind of findings around how to maybe attract a broader pool of talent to the organization. So I totally agree we have a pipeline problem, but I also think there is some small things within our power that we can do to sort of open up that open up that field a, a little bit more. But yes, I I, I, I didn't agree. know that. That's interesting and that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean because that's a very fixable thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there are, there are some and and there are some really good people that are, are thinking about, you know, how do you do sort of blind CVs or, or how do you write certain job descriptions so that they actually open up to the right kinds of talent pools that you're really interested in. So really fascinating stuff. And I agree with you that sort of DEI is 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 also a massive issue for, for our for our industry. So as I was saying, homework for a previous guest was to write a secret question for you, Bob. Okay. Um so it's in the envelope. So can you open the envelope and read the secret question? Whoa. You will also get the chance to write a secret question for the next guest Ooh. on the All Angles podcast. Turnabout is fair play. Yeah, exactly. The strength test or something. <laughs> you did say 410 pounds, so I gave it the extra stronger detail. Yeah, but that's like deadly. It's not like an envelope. Okay. Oh, is ESG enough to get us where we need to go? If not, what else is needed? The answer is it's most definitely not. No enough to get us where we need to go. As I said, you know, it's about material risk factors for value creation. It's not about positive and negative externalities. Let's not try and make ESG be more than it is. You know, and that's kind of legitimate criticism from the left to say, don't think that ESG is going to save the world. I mean, in one of my posts on LinkedIn, I had some guy who was from Texas or ranch hands and said, you know, ESG is a socialist conspiracy. And then I had some activist in Toronto say, Basically, when the world ends from climate change, ESG will be at the head of the parade. So, in fact, like I said, let's not even talk about ESG. Is it enough? You know, if not, what else is needed? You know, what is needed is to have clarity in products, whether they're ESG integration products. Carol talks about ESG investing. The term should go away. It's just investing. It's a factor like all these other factors that you folks worry about, right, which is legitimate. Uh, Impact is different. You need to have clarity on that. And then I think we need to, rather than have these very broad discussions that tend to get politicized, I think we need to talk about specific issues. And when you talk about language and recruiting, I think you're going to have a better time having a bipartisan conversation by talking about energy security and the energy transition than Al Gore fulminating on about how the world is going to end that kind of doomsday scenario thing, right? It just doesn't play. So let's have a candid conversation about the energy transition. Let's have a conversation about, you know, systemic racism um, without sort of getting into the bugaboo of, you know, critical race theory and all that. Let's have a candid conversation about nuclear. Mm. I support it. A lot of people don't. I understand there's differences of opinion. I think if we could kind of take this down to what are the specific issues that need to be addressed rather than it's some broad label of it's GSG, it's sustainability, uh, we're going to make a lot more progress in that regard. And in the end, it's all going to be... The extremes are going to rattle around, but when you look at legislation and you look at regulation, um, at least in this country, we've got a pretty strong two-party system, and that's it. 
it's only going to happen in a bipartisan way. Yep. And that's why I think, although it's maybe less dramatic and it's less sexy and it's, you know, less entertaining, you know, to be having these pragmatic conversations, we all need to be focusing on how do we identify the issues that need to be addressed. As Dan and I said, separate out material risk disclosures from salient political issues. And when we say ESG integration can only do so much, what else is needed? Let's identify those areas where it's really a political public policy question. And let's have the discussion around that. That's great. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob. I'm, tre- I'm tremendously excited, actually, by that answer of thinking about how do we break it down to the kind of nub of the core issue rather than getting lost in the kind of broad space of sort of ESG. I think that's actually a fantastic way to, to think about it. Um, Bob, thank you so much for your time, for your insight, for your wisdom. You've been extremely generous with us today and our listeners. Um, thank you very much Good for fun. joining us. Good to see you. Take care. Cheers. So that was Bob Eccles. I think he set us an interesting challenge for the homework that we have to do to think about what it would be like in front of the House hearings, to think about how, what message that we want to send and how as investors and members of the investment community, we do actually need to probably step up and own more of this conversation. I appreciate him bringing that challenge to us. So again, thank you for listening. Good luck with your homework and let us know at allangles at mfs.com how you get on with it and maybe we can share some notes.